0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations.
1: You really want to be educated to be somebody who cannot be replaced by a computer. And I guarantee you that it will never be able to replace the most important part of us, which is the creativity. Are
0: you sure about that? Today, we talk about the Voynich Manuscript, the Zodiac Cipher, specialized non-human languages, the Dorabella Cipher, ciphers in general, and how to go about decrypting them. Greg Kondrak is a professor of artificial intelligence investigating natural language processing in a way that it relates to language reconstruction. He's employed these machine learning techniques to attempt what can be considered the most objective decipherment of the Voynich Manuscript, which is a considerably rare illustrated codex handwritten in an otherwise unknown writing system. It's evaded any attempt to decode it since the Italian Renaissance. The Voynich manuscript is written on an expensive vellum and it's just one of the several puzzles that Professor Kondrak has tackled. Another example being the Dorabella cipher. Greg Kondrak is also known for proving Chomsky's statement wrong, the statement that English orthography is close to optimal. My name's Kurt jai I have a background in mathematical physics. This podcast is called Theories of Everything. is dedicated to the exploration of theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as exploring the role consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature each sponsor as well as the patrons improves the quality of the videos drastically it improves the depth it improves the frequency and it goes toward paying the staff for instance someone who's editing this full-time right now and then we have an operations manager if you'd like to support the theories of everything podcast and help assist that is the improved video quality, the depth, the frequency of the podcast, and paying the staff. Then do consider going to patreon.com slash Kurt The link is on screen as well as in the description. There's a custom amount as well as already delineated tiers. Either way, your viewership is thank you enough. Enjoy this conversation with Greg Kondrak. Professor, what is the Voynich Manuscript and why is it important?
1: The transcript is uh, a medieval manuscript written in uh, some code that is was actually confirmed to be actually a genuine uh, manuscript from the 15th century. Uh, it is. It has illustrations. It has text. The script or the alphabet is unique for the manuscript. Has not been deciphered um, yet. Why hasn't it been deciphered? Uh, that's, uh, not, uh, we don't know why it hasn't been deciphered. Some people say it's because there's nothing to decipher. It's, it's just some kind of a joke or uh, other people say that the encoding system is very complicated and then other people have other theories about it. Why do people say it's a joke and what do you make of that? Um well, I, I I personally, I don't think, uh, as I said, that this is a, a testable scientific hypothesis. Uh, you can you can guess that it's a joke, but it's very hard to prove something like that. Uh, obviously, it cost a lot of money to produce this kind of manuscript in the Middle Ages, so that's uh, one reason that I don't think it was a joke. Um, well, but uh, also it it's um, there there's some work showing that there are some statistical uh, properties that indicate there is actually a language that is being encoded i've seen several documentaries on the
0: voynich manuscript several so not just one or two there's a variety of them and then there's also a whole subreddit so a whole reddit group dedicated to solving this why is this so difficult compared to other ciphers in the past like what is it about this
1: Well, the difficulty uh, here is that, the first difficulty is that we don't know what language it is. Uh, Very often we have ciphers, we have messages, but we know what the message is. For example, the German Enigma machine was a very hard cipher, but we knew that it was German being encoded, which made it uh, quite easier. And the second thing is that we don't know the script or the alphabet. If that alphabet was used for something else, we would know how to speak it, how to pronounce these words. And third uh, problem is that this is just a unique document. There's no other document that is is written in this way. So it's all self-contained and uh, we don't even know, and we're not exactly sure where it was even produced. It's strange that there's no other document that's like that.
0: Firstly, that the script is different. Like you mentioned that we don't know how to pronounce the words, though, even in the Enigma code, it's not as if the words were meant to be pronounced and then understood like that. You could have translated it to zeros and ones, and it still would have been difficult. It still would have been the same problem. So why does the fact that we don't understand how to pronounce the alphabet make a difference? Why can't we just say, look, this letter appears, let's call that letter 28. Let's call that other letter 50.
1: Yeah, well, so we have letters, but we have words. Words are made of letters. That's the truth in every language, human language, that you have words that are made of phonemes, that usually uh, every phoneme has its own letter. And then uh, there are certain uh, uh, patterns, regularities. For example, there are certain words that can be pronounced uh, and other words that cannot be pronounced, and that varies from language to language. So uh, so the moment uh, you you know what language we're speaking, we know usually know the lexicon of that language, uh, typically a, a few thousand words, and they have different frequencies. So that makes it a lot easier to decipher anything. Even if you just replace every word with a number, Uh, that will still give you some information about the frequency of the words as long as you do something to compare it to. I know there are different kinds of ciphers and I believe the simplest
0: is called a substitution cipher. That's like when you're a kid and you just replace the letter A with C and so on. What other kinds of ciphers are there?
1: Yeah, so principally there are substitution ciphers which is replacing uh, symbols and transposition ciphers which is mixing them up, changing their sequence. And every cipher uh, is a combination of those two methods. Now, we don't know what is Voynich. We don't know if it's just a simple substitution or is it a a substitution combined with transposition. Uh, The paper that we wrote assumed that the transposition was involved and we tried to come up with a general method of breaking this kind of uh, ciphers that combine substitutions and positions.
0: I completely glossed over the history. Actually, I, not that I glossed over, I had forgotten to even ask you to give the audience an indication as to where was this document found? Why does it matter? Why is it that scholars even care about it? I'm sure there's plenty about the past that we don't know about. So. Why is it that many scholars, and not only scholars, groups of people, teams of people on Reddit are poring over, trying to figure out what the heck is this saying, where was it from? Can you give a bit of the history of it, please?
1: Sure. So so it was found uh, basically by the uh, person whose name was Voynich. That's why it's called Voynich. It was uh, a kind of a collector uh, in uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And the, since then, the, the, the manuscript has been tracked back to 17th century to the court of uh, a Roman emperor. And that's where it kind of ends, that's where the trail ends. Uh, but as uh, not long ago, there was a, a, a chemical analysis done on the manuscript. So we're certain that it was actually written in the 15th century. Uh, so there is no doubt about that anymore. Now, you also asked the other question, which is why are people so fascinated with it? I think the main reason is that we are fascinated by puzzles. If we see something that seems to be a message, we want to know what that message is. We want to decipher it. And uh, Voynich is like a Mount Everest of all, uh, of all uh, uh, cryptographic puzzles. It was actually studied by many years by uh, people that were working for the US government and that were professional breakers, code breakers that, that broke codes during the second world
0: war. In the case of the Enigma code, we, at least we could presume that it has something to do with government secrets and war. Whereas with this, do we have any indication
1: as to what the subject matter is? Well, we have the illustrations. That's what makes it uh, really interesting is uh, we have uh, plants, uh, people, uh, medicines, all kinds of uh, strange illustrations that seem to be related to the text. Uh, so, so this is not just a text, like uh, some kind of ancient inscription, but it is actually a codex, which is like a compendium of some kind of knowledge, which was quite common in middle ages. And is it quite common among a
0: particular group that speaks a particular language and thus we could figure out, okay, with this amount of probability, it's from this culture or this group of people?
1: Yeah, so many of those codex, uh, codices are in Latin, which was the language of literature and science in Middle Ages. Uh, and you can actually find such uh, such books very similar, similar looking from Middle Ages that are written, written in Latin. The best guesses about the, the provenance of the manuscripts uh, point at Northern Italy, where, of course, Latin was the language uh, of literature as well at that time. Is it controversial that it's in the 15th century and in
0: Northern Italy?
1: Almost everything that you can say about Voynich manuscript is controversial. So. This is what I consider a reasonable guess, but pretty much everybody has a different opinion where this uh, this manuscript comes from and what language it represents. I, I don't have any, it is not my research that uh, points to the Northern Italy. I only looked at this uh, manuscript from the point of view of computation decipherment.
0: Speaking of your research, now would be a great time to tell the audience What is it that you study, and then how the heck did you become interested in the Voynich manuscript, other than a general curiosity for solving puzzles?
1: Yeah, so I'm a computational linguist, I'd say. So I, I work at the computer science department at the University of Alberta in Canada. And I work on language in general, making computers understand human language making a writing programs that can process human language and do the work for us because there's so much text that is available that nobody can actually read that, all of that all of it uh, about the, the the decipherment the person that uh, made this really interesting for me was professor kevin knight from university of southern california and he uh, worked on various interesting projects, and I sh- saw his presentation on Voynich Manuscript about 10 years ago, I- I'd say, and, uh, it, it was related to what I was doing. What Kevin, uh, Dr. Knight said basically is that everything we do with language is a kind of decipherment because language we, uh, is typically written. That's what we work with a written language. Even if it's spoken, we work, we, we work with some form of it that is a transcription. And whenever you have a sequence of symbols, it becomes a decipherment problem. Basically deciphering first, what are the phonemes behind those symbols? And second what is the meaning behind those symbols. With respect
0: to the images in the Voynich, which will overlay on screen, is it strange to depict what they depict? The pictures? Yeah. Yeah. Like what are the pictures of and is there something unique about them?
1: Yes. So, so the, generally, if I tell you that it depicts plants, for example, that's not strange because that's what, uh, medieval codices do. But if you look closely out at those plants, uh, if you're an expert in plants, I'm not, but experts on plants look at them and say, well, these don't really look like real plants. These are look like made up plants and then there are pictures of people that uh, some kind of many uh, naked uh, uh, bodies taking baths in some kind of uh, green water you know in general pictures of people are not strange but those particular pictures are really strange and uh, they are unlike anything else that we know from middle age they're
0: strange because they're naked or they're strange because they're depicted alongside plants like what
1: is it specifically that's unique? There's change because it's not clear what they're depicting. Uh, are they depicting people taking baths? That I don't think was very common in middle ages or why are, uh, why are those uh, figures, for example, uh, all women and why they are naked, right? In the 15th century, that, that was not a normal thing to put in a book, um, mm-hmm. There are also other things like zodiac signs or, or pictures of plan of of planets that you would expect uh, to be uh, to be quite normal because we even know those uh, what those zodiacs are, but it's it's difficult to connect the words that describes those pictures to the actual pictures.
0: In one of the documentaries that I was watching about this, they said that a remarkable element is that. There are extremely few errors. In a writing of this yep. size, they would expect that there's some errors and then maybe you smudge it out or however they correct errors. And there's some way of detecting the frequency of the errors in a document. And most documents have, let's say, error percentage 2, 2%. Two they make an error every 2 out of 100 it words. Helped. Whereas this, it's much lower, like half of that or even half of half of that. Firstly, I want to know, is that even true? And then secondly, like, why? Why do you think that's the case? What could that mean?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I did not work with the actual text. I worked with the transcription that somebody made. But it is, from what I know, it is true that there is very few corrections. My personal opinion that this may indicate that whoever was writing this, copying it, did not understand what they were writing. You usually make corrections if you write something and you see, oh, it's that's not what it should be, right? But if you write something in a language that you're totally, totally unfamiliar with, you won't be able to notice that. That's interesting.
0: In that case, that would imply that there's another copy.
1: No, that that means that I, I, uh, there were people that maybe were copying the text into the manuscript, because that was, uh, you would expect there was some draft that we're copying from, because the manuscript itself was very expensive uh, to write on. And we also know that there are different kind of hands. So it looks like there were more than one person doing the copying. That's interesting.
0: Then that means that it's extra difficult to decipher it because there are errors. We don't know this, but that would mean that there's more than the average amount of errors. What's the difference between enciphering, So creating a cipher out of something and then encryption.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure if there is a difference. You know, if you really try to find the difference, you could say that encryption is like you do encryption of a text, but you don't really know how it is done, you know, you, ap- you apply some encryption program. Whereas in ciphering implies that you go like letter by letter, look up the key and then cipher each, each letter separately. But in general, I think it's, it's pretty much the same thing.
0: What were the different methods used to decipher the Voynich manuscript, not just by you, but by others? What techniques do they employ?
1: Well, that's kind of difficult to say because none of those methods actually worked. Uh, the decipherment has not been achieved, in spite of many claims to the contrary. So, uh, so the there isn't really any algorithm involved. It's it's mostly based on people's intuition and and theories. Uh, But but even then, even uh, even if there was some method, to it it has not produced uh, a readable uh, transcription.
0: What are some of your attempts to decipher it? Can you go through the successes and failures?
1: Yes. So, so in our project, Uh, our assumption was that the first thing to basically to start with is to find out what language this is written in. If we don't know what the language it is written in, then there's no way to decipher it, so we devised uh, some methods of detecting, identifying the language of the cipher even without deciphering it and uh we used a sample a large sample of about 400 languages and out of those 400 languages we assigned like a number a score to each language in terms of the probability that this language is the language of the manuscript and uh what was interesting that we found was that the language that was the the highest scoring language out of those 400 was Hebrew.
0: How much higher was it than the second and third place?
1: Well, it was a clear difference. I would say a significant difference between the second one in the list. So that was quite striking.
0: And were you able to get any other historical documents that are written in Hebrew? That have a similar art style and are of similar length, just to see. Well, is this common? Is this a common practice to the people who write in Hebrew, or is this
1: aberrant? Is this extremely unique? So the Hebrew manuscripts exist, and they were written throughout Middle Ages in Hebrew by by the uh, Jewish scholars. And uh, I'm not the only person that that uh, that uh, hypothesized that this uh, this was actually coming from. From the Jewish scholar community, uh, now nobody used this kind of particular script, but this script uh, uh, does uh, have some uh, some similarities to Hebrew script. Uh, for example, I, I actually don't speak Hebrew, uh, uh, or or uh, I don't know much about it, but. I know that the Hebrew script does not include letters, uh, sorry, include vowels, which makes the words shorter. And this is what we observe in Vineet, is that the words are quite short. Hear
0: that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus, one hundred free blades when you head to h e n s o n s h a v i n g dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
1: And then the number, uh, the number of uh, different symbols suggests that it is something like a, a substitution cipher, because the number of symbols is similar to the number of phonemes in a typical language. So now that you have at least potentially identified the
0: language, what's the next step?
1: Yeah, a very good point. So the next point, the next step is obviously try to match every symbol to a different letter of the, say, Hebrew alphabet. Uh, And that usually is easy. Uh, Breaking simple substitution ciphers is easy, but it doesn't work in this case it does not produce any sensible decipherment. So we uh, came up with this hypothesis that the letters within words are actually transposed to make it more difficult to decipher. Uh, And when you kind of uh, move the letters around, it becomes very difficult to decipher it. So we came up with a method that could handle this kind of transposition Within uh, words, and we tested it on other languages, and it worked very well. Uh, however, when we apply this to uh, the uh, Voynich manuscript, it still does not produce any kind of uh, readable decipherment.
0: When you're testing it with other languages, are you testing it with encipherments that you contrive, or are you testing it with ciphers that already exist from those other languages?
1: No, we tested it on a mass scale with, uh, with synthetic ciphers. So computer generated ciphers, but these were generated from the actual text in those languages. You mentioned that there's two kinds of ciphers, at least so far. So there's substitution
0: and then transposed or transposition. What else is there? So pig Latin where you just, you add some words, is that considered transposition? No, I think pig Latin is like a game what i'm saying is that it seems like there are other methods that exist even if they're silly so there's transposition there's substitution is that primarily it or is there a seldom third
1: well i would say even big latin you can express it probably as some kind of substitution uh, or and transposition right so so these serious ciphers like Enigma is, is basically again, a combination of substitution and a transposition. Yeah, uh. actually Enigma is just pure substitution. Really. There's no transposition there, except that of course the spaces between words are removed. Well, that's
0: disappointing. You're like, okay, great, I've made a headway. I found out that it's Hebrew, at least you're somewhat confident it's Hebrew. Then you say, well, okay, let me devise some way of deciphering any substitution plus transposition combination. It works on other ciphers. Great, let me apply it here. Doesn't work. So now what are you thinking and what's next?
1: Well, first of all, I'm not confident that it is actually Hebrew. All I can say is that out of those 400 languages that we had samples of, this is the one that got the highest score. So if I had to pick one of those 400, then I would pick Hebrew, but the language may actually not, uh, not be in that 400 sample. It may be uh, there's thousands of languages in the world. And in addition, it may not actually be actually any human language. Some people hypothesize that it's a made up language like Esperanto kind of thing. Fair so uh, of course we were excited to see some kind of clear preference for one of the languages, uh, but uh, and uh, and we applied a, a kind of a scientific uh, methodology to it. So we reported those results, and they are replicable. If somebody else applies this to that sample, they will find exactly the same thing. But that doesn't mean that this language is actually Hebrew. So, uh, yeah, if, if I was really convinced that this was Hebrew, I think the next thing I would have to do is to actually learn Hebrew because that would be the only way to decipher that complicated, uh, manuscript full of errors, but of course, uh, I have a lot of other projects to do, so I'm not going to study Hebrew for that purpose. But there are many people that know Hebrew and, uh, and I'm sure if, if this was really Hebrew, they would be able to, to decipher it and themselves.
0: So if someone watching speaks Hebrew and is a computer scientist, and they also want to help, what should they do? Contact you? Or is there some program that they run?
1: No, Don't contact do you. No, please do not. Why? I, I've been, because I've been contacted by so many people. I'm just going to put on but- screen, please contact Kron Here's his email address and his private phone number. Yeah, I, I so, some of those people uh, were actually experts in Hebrew and in computers and in ciphers. And even they, they could not make any progress. On it. So then why do you think that if you were to learn Hebrew would help? No, I said that if I really was 100% sure that it's Hebrew, then that would definitely help to know Hebrew, right? My work is from a point of view of a a computer scientist, not from a point of view of a linguist or, or a cryptographer. So it's not as simple as saying,
0: identify the language, then suggest the different rules. So that is the substitution slash transposition combination. And once you have that feed a text, any text that is in that language and is some unknown substitution slash transposition combination and outputs,
1: it tells you yes or no, it's not as simple as that. So, you know, as I said, the, the main value of Voynich manuscript is that it forces you to come up with new methods that later may turn out to be useful for other things. What we came up with is, is a methodology for doing this. And it, we proved it in our paper that it works. Maybe at kind of ninety-five percent accuracy. If you take a language, whatever language, pick any language, provided it's in that four hundred sample, uh, sub- substitute letters for other symbols, scramble them, give it to our program, it it will decipher it with ninety-five percent accuracy. So that so that is proven and that is a replicable thing that was published in the paper. But, but that is made on the assumption that, that it is actually an actual human language included in that set 400 languages that is being used for that purpose. The fact that it doesn't work with Voynich suggests that Voynich is not written in Hebrew or any of those 400 languages. So you ended up testing it on all 400 languages. No, we tested it on a smaller subset. I think it was six languages. Um, Is it just computationally too difficult to do
0: all of them? Like it takes up too much time. Can you not just tell the computer to run with it?
1: The problem is that you need to build what's called a language model for each language, and for that, you need a lot of text. and, uh, the European languages Uh, usually all of them have a lot of texts, like people write newspapers in them, but if you pick languages that are very small or very exotic, then it's very difficult to find any electronic texts written in those languages. And so, so then it's very difficult to, to derive a language model from those texts because they are too small. That was the reason. Yeah, it's quite the
0: conundrum. At least you were able to develop some new techniques that can be applied to other problems. Have you made any other progress other than what you've just indicated?
1: So I mentioned that we worked on another, uh, undeciphered text. How about we just transition to that and I'll come back and forth to the
0: Voynich at different points. Why don't you tell us about the Dorabella cipher?
1: You know, for me. Like, I know there are people that just spend their all their lives on Voynich, right? They're like obsessed with Voynich. But for me, it was just one project of many. So after Voynich, after we decided that we've done everything we could with it, we left it to other people to, uh, to puzzle over. And uh, there was another uh, cipher that caught my attention, which is called the Dorabella cipher. And this was written uh, in 20th century. We know who wrote it. It was uh, uh, an English composer who wrote uh, a postcard to his friend. And that postcard was was the cipher. It it included the cipher, which is about 80 characters in a kind of a strange script. And that that postcard survived and uh, was published after his death. The, The composer's name is Elgar. Um, and nobody has been able to decipher that short text. So that's the Darabella cipher, another undeciphered cipher. now our approach was that maybe, you know, this is not a text, any language text. Maybe this is just music because that guy was a, a composer. So what happens, what will happen if we try to decipher into music? So we came up with algorithms and implemented programs that can take uh, a short text like that. Uh, if, uh, I mean, not text, but a short piece of music that is encoded in some way and decipher it. Uh, and uh, uh, and that's what happened. Uh, we we uh, published a paper that at the end, produces a kind of reconstruction of a melody that is our best guess at the decipherment of that cipher into music. You said a peculiar
0: statement about the Voynich manuscript, that it may not be a human language. Now, do you mean to say a language that large groups of people speak, or that it's an alien language, like it's not a homo sapien?
1: It could be a made-up language, right? So, you know that Actually, there exists languages that were invented like Esperanto and uh, many languages, like hundreds of languages have been invented. This could be one of those, a language that was never spoken by any community, but somebody just kind of made up a, a language and, and it's possible. Anybody can do that, invent their own language. I
0: see. So it's still, it's a human language in the sense that it's made by a human. But it's not a human language in the sense that it's not spoken by many people or even known about. So it's not as if yeah, an alligator maybe. made up this language or some other extra dimensional entity made up the language or divinely inspired.
1: That's right. A better word is probably natural language. We say natural language is the language that occur in, uh, in, uh, on the, on the planet spoken by some community of people. I see. Steven Bax is another professor
0: who is no longer with us, but he studied this manuscript. And I'm curious if you can go through what his theories on it are, and then also your commentary on it.
1: Well, actually, I'm not an expert in, uh, in his theories or, or, or any other theories. You know, the, the, the ultimate test of a theory is that it produces a decipherment. Right. So, uh, as far as I know, no reasonable decipherment has been produced by uh, dr bax or anybody else so uh, it's it's not a huge motivation to study somebody's method if that method has not actually worked how does one go about
0: the process of learning a language from a computational perspective
1: so you know uh, everybody speaks a language that's the universal thing every human being they have their own native language plus they may speak other languages but the majority of people i I think they just learn very well their own native language and they learn it as children uh if you try to learn a language after you're like some somehow like 10 years old then you'll find out that it actually becomes a different process it becomes more difficult and you actually have to school have to go to school or study books or go on the internet and somebody teaches you a language. This is not how children learn a language. So there's a big difference between the native language and the second language that we learn. For example, when I speak, you, you can probably tell that English is not my first language. My first language is Polish. So because it's not my native language and because I learned it as a teenager, you can tell from my accent that, uh, that I'm not a native speaker, right? So, uh, so this already tells you something about what people call the language instinct, the, the ability of people to acquire language. Now linguistics is, is, uh, is, a science of, of the language, which deals with various aspects of the language. And those include things like. Phonetics and morphology, grammar, syntax, semantics, pragmatics, acquisition—many things.
0: What are pragmatics? Briefly, sorry.
1: Yeah, pragmatics is probably w- what you are most interested yourself. Is is uh, basically, for example, sentiment analysis is pragmatics, right? Uh, if you if you deal with sentiment analysis, you're not really interested in finding out what people say. But what they feel about what they say, right? so that's that's what we call pragmatics. It's not just about the message. it's about all the other stuff upon it. How do we feel about the message? That sounds terribly complicated. <laughs> is it? No, it does well it's it is difficult. But, uh, but, uh, it's, but
0: it's doable and it's not the hardest part.
1: It's, it is one of the tasks that people do. And, and we have programs now that are very good at it. Okay. So continue on where you were, please. Yeah. When you say that it sounds, uh, very complicated is because it's hard to define exactly what we mean by things like sentiment. Like, mean you mean, like, what do you mean sentiment? Like, uh, and then people say, well, are you angry? Are you happy? are you uh, sad uh, and then how many feelings do we have well we have eight feelings really eight no maybe 12 right so this, these are things that are very difficult to define it's much easier to deal with things like letters or phonemes where we know exactly how many letters or phonemes we have in a language and uh, it's easier to write programs that deal with that yeah so I'll, I'll give it a try. So, so you can imagine it's like a pipeline. So you start with, when you hear somebody speaking, you start with what are the sounds of the language, right? That's phonetics. And now once you've done that, then you try to figure out where one word starts, the, the other ends, right? You want to see, you want to identify the words because there's only a limited number of words. And that's the, what we call lexicon, or lexicals. And then, you, you, when you look at the words, you sh, you see that they are made up of, of sounds or letters, but they are also made of something bigger, which is called morphemes. And uh, and that's the stuff of morphology. Yeah. That's the study of morphology. For example, if uh, if I say a word like ungrammaticality. And then you can say, well, there are three parts of it, the an, the grammar, and the ality. that's the morphology. So, so these are considered the kind of a low level, low levels of language. And as you go up, it becomes more interesting. So first of all, how are words put together into sentences? How is it that you can have sentences that. You ask somebody, is that a proper English sentence? And they say yes or no. They can tell, even though they have no idea, they haven't studied linguistics. Every native speaker can tell you if a sentence is grammatical or not. That's the study that Noam Chomsky did in the fifties. Can we write a program that can tell a grammatical sentence from an ungrammatical sentence? And on top of that, on top of syntax is semantics, which is about the As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness,
0: and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful, Addition to my day post workout, especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm. How's the flavor? Mmm, great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, mosh bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com/slash tow to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the bestseller's trial pack or or the new plant-based trial pack—that's twenty percent off, plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack—at moshlife.com/toe. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video.
1: Meaning of words: We can have perfectly grammatical sentences that are meaningless, and vice versa. We can have meaningless utterances that are not grammatical. And then on top of semantics is pragmatics, which has all these things that are difficult to define and that appear to you very complicated.
0: This universal grammar of Chomsky's, it's true in the sense that you can create a program that can identify which sentences are grammatically correct and incorrect.
1: Actually, I don't think so. I think that's what Chomsky tried to do all his life, but it has not, um, it has not been done as far as i know but uh, at least that was the state of the art about 10 years ago now the the the, uh, the last few years we have seen the the neural language models appearing which are extremely effective and which as you know can produce a, a completely grammatical and text that also makes sense yeah so so by extension that means that these these uh, programs can tell the difference between a grammatical and ungrammatical sentence because they only produce grammatical sentence
0: are there other universal concepts
1: in language like universal grammar uh so the universal concepts in language uh, are the things that are in every language uh, on earth every national language if if there is something that almost all languages possess, but some languages don't, then it's not universal. So there's a whole area of linguistics that is dealing with finding things that are universal in human languages. And I, as far as I know, there's a, a long list of those things. Have you used any machine learning or neural language processing in the decipherment of the Voynich? We did use machine learning, but not neural methods. No, the, the, the reason we didn't try, we didn't use a neural methods for decipherment, I, I think you have some experience already with these neural bots is that they can make sense of everything. So for example, Google Translate, if you give it a, a, a something that doesn't make sense, it will still translate it into something that does. Obviously we don't want something like that to be applied to Voynich manuscript because we want to really know what's really there, not how to make sense out of it in some way, right?
0: There isn't some way of identifying what makes sense and what doesn't in the same way that for some sentences you can identify if it's grammatically correct or incorrect. Like that program has not been completely explicated, like you mentioned with Chomsky, but maybe there's huge progress there. Is there not progress in saying this sentence makes
1: sense or not? That is much harder to do. There is progress. Yeah. Every year there is progress, but, uh, we are still far from reaching that point.
0: You've seen that there's chat GPT and there's open AIs GPT-3. What's your opinion of them?
1: Are you excited by them? Are you surprised by them? I'm excited that those tools uh, become available, but I'm also kind of worried that people are too enthusiastic about them. And they, uh, for me, the problem is that they are basically uh, what somebody called parrots, right? They're parrots that uh, have heard a lot of language being spoken, everything that was ever written. And they are very good at repeating, putting together those sentences and words together, but there is no really under, no real understanding underneath. Those systems cannot tell us why they think the these things that they say are true. They're basically repeating the words that have been written somewhere and rearranging.
0: To be fair, most people when they're putting out something that's creative, they're just repeating what they've seen and they're mixing it up and they believe it to be absolutely new. And also, just so you know, there is something creative about mixing up and then presenting it. And furthermore, most people, maybe even all of us, we don't know the motivations, like we'll confabulate some reason for why we created so-and-so. Like that's why the whole field of psychoanalysis came about, because we don't know why we do what we do. We make up some reason. So. Why does it matter that the computer doesn't know why it does what it's doing and that it's quote unquote, repeating while mixing, let's say mixing what's old.
1: I don't think it matters if you're interested in a computer producing art, like writing a song or painting a picture, but it does matter if you rely on the computer to tell you what the truth is, right? Uh, because if you don't. If somebody cannot explain to you why they believe something is true, then how can you trust them? These are deep questions. So what
0: I find remarkable is that you can just, even a simple program, asking it to code this in Python, code something that does this in Python, code something that does this in auto hotkey or whatever it may be. And it does it, or does it 90% the way there. Who the heck, I didn't think that that would be possible for quite some time. There's something truthful about that in the sense that it works. Like you can actually test if the code works. So that's a, a test of truth more so than a statement. Are you happy about that? Or you feel like even that's old technology that could have been done five years ago or.
1: So, well, the program programming is a bit different story, right? Because you can actually test programs, right? Uh, so if some, if you ask, uh, uh whether it's a human or, or it's a bot to write a program, you can, you provide a specification, then you can go through the testing, t- the test procedure and find out if that program really does what it does. Right. So we don't actually have to trust the prog, the uh, trust anything. We can just test it. Right. But if we don't, if we don't, if, if we don't have time to test it, then I would be wondering whether. It's a good idea to depend on such a program. So
0: going back to the voyage, have you thought about if it's composed of at least one language, like maybe there are multiple.
1: You know, uh, it could be, uh, could be a lot of things there, you know, the, 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 you can make these, uh, encryption systems as complicated as you wish so so it's all possible there is no there's no limit there will be no limit where we can say well we tried everything and now we know it doesn't make sense so it must be some kind of a joke or some kind of random generator but uh what is fascinating about Voynich is that we can use it to actually create new things right so Like with Dorabella, we take this cypher and we create uh, a melody, right? And, and many people take a Voynich and they produce decipherments that are like uh, their own uh, pieces of, of art, like their own books. The only problem is that everybody produces a different one. So none of them can be actually correct, but it is still a creation. So I think that is that is very good about Voynich, that it exists. Have you thought
0: about Voynich from less of a computational perspective and more just from a, a human motivation one? What the heck is this about? Why would someone go through such lengths to decipher this? Or maybe it's not even lengths. Like you mentioned, it could be something trivial. We're just overlooking. Like what other theories come up in your mind? Just surmising, just conjecture.
1: Yeah, so one of, of the more interesting theories that I've encountered actually comes from this uh, US expert on decipherment. And in the end, he said that he thinks this is uh, an artificial language. Somebody m- created an artificial language and wrote that the Voynich manuscript in that language. Well, if that's the case, then it's, it's very difficult. It would be very difficult to decipher it because we don't know the principles of that language. It could be a language that is completely unpronounceable. It's just a sequence of symbols. Um, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that, that is one theory that, that is for me, the most convincing.
0: What else? Have you heard that is at least somewhat convincing? Maybe this one's at the top, but is there a second?
1: Um, you know, when I look, anybody can look at those illustrations, they're on the web. Right. And, uh, if, if you look for them for a long time, sometimes I think this, this somebody was not quite. It wasn't, it wasn't a work of an expert, it was a work of somebody who actually didn't know what they were doing and just tried to create something like what they saw before in other codices, in other books, a little bit like a neural language model that just looks a lot of things and sees a lot, reads a lot, and then produces something that looks like it should make sense, but it doesn't. Huh, that's interesting. We know that those language models can be tricked to produce texts that just seem to make sense about complete nonsense, right? For example, why it's good to eat crushed glass, right? And it will give you all the, all the reasons for that, why it is good to eat crushed glass. When
0: it comes to the Dorabella cipher, there were some other people who came up with decipherments. I'm going to read some right now. Starts, larks, it's chaotic, but a cloak obscures my new letters, AB, alpha, beta. That is the Greek letters. Below, I own the dark. And then there's others. So, why am I very sad? And so on. I'm sure you've heard these. So yes. what do you
1: ma- Yeah. Okay. What do you make of these? I've seen this before. But it always makes me laugh when I hear it. It's, it's just, for me, it's complete nonsense. Why? Why? Well, it is, it is nonsense to imagine that uh, a distinguished uh, English composer would write something like that to his uh, love interest. Imagine if
0: you were to decipher Voynich. What would be next for you? No more ciphers, or do
1: you have your eye on another one? You know, I I think it, this happened. I mean, Voynich has not been decrypted, but there was a very interesting uh, decipherment recently of uh, of actual cipher, which was called Zodiac cipher. I don't know if you, right, if you right, heard Right, right, yeah. It. And that that is actually correct, right? that that deciphering is not fake. It is actually a correct decipherment. So uh, I would probably ask that that person about their feelings, like what how they feel about cracking that cipher. Is it like a complete bliss? or is it like some kind of disappointment that you know I put so much work into it, and then I find that this text is actually, kind of, you know, not interesting at all. It's like some kind of deranged mind writing it. So, uh, yes, you know, there are one one, uh, kind of tragedy is if you don't achieve your goal and the other tragedy is if you do achieve your goal.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, let's get philosophical here. To me, that means that you have to enjoy the process more than the state, even though there's some end state and that's supposedly driving the process. You have to fall in love with the process because you may, if you're lucky and maybe
1: unlucky, reach that state. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I do feel about, uh, problems in computational linguistics that, and that I love doing this stuff. And, uh, I just would be able to do this, you know, for free if, uh, uh, if, because it, it's, it's such, such huge fun to do this. But uh, Voynich was just one of the projects that I got interested in. And uh, I learned from the project, I, I got some experience from that project that I think made me a better scientist so that I can apply this experience to the projects that are not, that actually do have a solution. Well, right now I'm, we are very excited to be working on semantics, on lexical semantics. and. And uh, we are proposing, uh, we you know we are finding things that other scientists find uh, maybe uh, controversial. Right, but the huge uh, the huge advantage of of the work that we do is that we can actually provide proofs, mathematical proofs of of what we do, and this is uh, this gives us the satisfaction of. Of actually being certain that we are doing something right because we can prove it.
0: Going back to loving the road more than where you're going. I feel the same with this podcast. It's about theories of everything in the physics sense. So my background is in mathematical physics and a part of me, I feel like I'll be extremely disappointed if I encounter, or if we discover as people, as scientists, the theory of everything. There is something that's terribly fun about learning it and investigating. So I don't want it to be over.
1: I don't think you have to worry about that. Uh, Personally, I think, you know, looking at how the universe is constructed, I'm pretty sure it has some built-in mechanism so that we can never actually figure it out completely. What gives you that intuition? Well, you know the the yeah, yeah, you know like uh, this uh, when you talk about theories of arising, errors, and you you obviously talk to physicists who so, uh, and that deal with quantum mechanics and things like that, and how there are certain principles that we can prove that we'll never know the truth, right Like we'll never know where the a particular particle is what is the, it's exact location and speed and so on. And this, uh, this just, this is for me an indication that these things are constructed in such a way that we will never be able to crack them completely. All right. Well, that's hopeful, but also
0: dismaying. (laughs) At least it's both and not one without the other. So about the Zodiac. If that's a substitution cipher, was it a substitution and transposition or just substitution?
1: Oh yeah, it was substitution and transposition and it was uh, a very tricky transposition too.
0: Yeah, why is that?
1: And would your method have worked on the Zodiac one? No, the the method would not work on Zodiac because the assumption of our methods was that we know where the words are. So in Voynich, there are spaces between words, and we made this assumption that this is not just to confuse, but they are actually words, right? Now in the Zodiac cipher, there was no spaces between words. So, although it is possible to kind of hypothesis where the spaces are, that method, that particular method would not work on Zodiac.
0: And the method used to crack the Zodiac cipher can that method or methods be used to help with the Voynich?
1: Actually, you know, I don't think so. I think the, the, the key of the decipherment in that case was just finding the uh, specific pattern right, of transposition. So it was not any kind of cool new theory that is general and can be applied to various things. It was just kind of a a stroke of luck that, that allowed- Like trial and error? It is always a trial and error when you do actual decipherment. But what I mean is that there is no method behind it that can be generalized and applied to other things. How has
0: AI, and maybe this is a term that you don't want to use, but how has AI aided your field so instead of saying AI, then reference the, a specific model, like GANs, have changed my field because of so, or supervised learning in the form of A, B and C changed my field.
1: Yeah. So you cannot, uh, you cannot kind of avoid the, the word neural nowadays. When you talk about language understanding, uh, it's, it's a, it's a powerful, uh, new tool, and everybody's very, very excited about it, including myself. So it, of course, it changed everything because what uh, the story of uh, language processing is that it started from a kind of a symbolic processing and then moved into the machine learning stage and then evolved into the, the neural methods, which we use nowadays. So what is exciting about it is that. Every few years, you have a new revolution and and new methods, and and we make constant progress to the point that some people think that the problem of language has been solved, but but it's not the case. Sorry, that the problem of language has been solved? The problem of language understanding has been solved, that that we can basically now have programs that will do every language-related task that we want. Uh, And it's not true. Who thinks that 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 problem has been solved? Well, uh, you know, when I read these uh, articles about uh, the neural bots that can, uh, you know, write...
0: As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math... I recognized the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful, Addition to my day, post workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm.
1: How's the flavor?
0: Mmm. it's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, mosh bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or or the new plant based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant based trial pack at slash toe. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video.
1: Uh, newspaper articles or, or uh, compose symphonies or something that sometimes you get an impression that. Well, we're done, right? We can just leave it all to the computers and they will, they will do everything for us. But what I tell my students is that you really want to become, to be educated, to be somebody who cannot be replaced by a computer. And I guarantee you that they will never be able to replace that most important part of us, which is the creativity. Are you sure about that? <laughs> Look, what is it
0: about human creativity that a machine can't replicate? By the way, I'm not being skeptical. I just don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts are because since you're in this field.
1: Well, that's exactly what you said. Machine cannot replicate. Creativity and replication are, are opposite things. Creativity is doing something that has not been done before. Of course, you can say, well, it's just kind of building on what was before. But it's not replicating, it's not parroting. It's creating something new based on a deeper understanding of things. Well, there's this old joke
0: of, if you want to create an apple pie from scratch, you have to first create the universe. It's like, well, did you get it from the farm? No, I bought it from this. Okay. But even if you had it from the farm, did you grow the dirt? Did you, well, yes. Okay. Yeah, but did you make the cow and so on and so on in a sense? Whatever we think of as new, it's so tricky. Like, it depends on what what the heck are we defining as novel, as creative. And I'm sure if we could look into our brain with a certain amount of resolution and we had the correct model, if it even could be modeled computationally. But regardless, maybe there's some non-computational model. If it can even be modeled, quote unquote model. The point is that I imagine, it's conceivable to me, that what we think of as outputting something creative is something that is algorithmic. Like, I'm not set on this, but it's conceivable, and if that's the case, then I don't see why a computer can't do it. Now, whether or not a computer can feel and understand what it's doing, like, that's a separate problem. But the actual output, I don't see an in-principle reason why it can't be done. And I'm telling you this as a romantic, like, I don't want this to be done, but I see more and more, like, aspects that we thought computers could not do. Like, it couldn't beat us a chess, and then, like, well, it can't create art. Oh my gosh, can it create art? And can't compose music. Oh my gosh, can it? And it can fuse different musical styles. So it keeps encroaching, encroaching into these areas that we thought this were just exclusive to humans. Well, what's left for us is like physical dexterity. And that seems to be it so far. My question is, are you confident in the statement that there's something special about human creativity? I would like that to be the case. I want to be convinced of
1: that. Well, first of all, when you said... uh that something cannot be done. You cannot demonstrate that something cannot be done. You cannot really demonstrate that something can be done by doing it, right? So I I will not be able, or I don't think anybody would be able to demonstrate that computers cannot do something. But I am a computer scientist. I, I've, you know, I programmed, programmed a lot. I worked with computers a lot and I know that the computers are good at doing repeatedly certain things and repeating patterns that already exist, right? You, you cannot have an algorithm to create something that does not exist, right? That That is novel, that is meaningful. Of course, you can create novel things. You can create chaos, right? You can create a, a random generator and This sequence of randomly generated numbers is unique. Is it novel? No, because it doesn't make sense. Are you afraid of where AI may be or are you more hopeful? I think it's a serious issue and we have to think about it, you know, because the danger I see is that people will trust those programs too much. And they, uh, we build them and we are responsible for telling them what we want them to do, that if we don't do this right, they may do surprising things that we did never actually anticipated. And I think the key thing is that we want these things to be transparent. We want to know if they tell us a statement, then we want to know why they think the statement is true. We want them to provide a proof of something that they state. Obviously, they are not at this level yet, right? For example, they can write uh, basically history books, right? But we don't know whether they are hallucinating or is it actual facts they're talking about. So there must be some way of them providing evidence of what they are saying is true. Like put references when you make a statement, like. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we I've been talking to students recently about what is true, right? Like if, like how can we decide if a, if a, if a sentence is true or false, right? And, uh, and the fact is that, you know, some people say everything's relative, you know, like. Some people think this is true and other people think this is true. I, what I, what I want to, the students to do is to decide first, what is the speaker, what's the the author of the utterance, if they think it's true or not. And this is non-trivial, but if they can establish that the, the author of the utterance or sentence believes it's true then it is true with respect to that person, right? So we can say this is a true statement according to this person. And it, it it is then kind of clear that this is some kind of evidence based on somebody's belief. So I do believe we can tell whether a statement is true or false, modulo the author of the statement. Except in the case of AI, like in the case of
0: people we can because they have intentions, but AI is no, currently no. Is there a subfield in computer science that's dedicated to this problem? How did the machine come upon this decision? Can it explain the reasons?
1: Yeah, many people are working on that because many people have realized that this is what we need in order to be able to use those tools. And what's that field called or subfield? Well, the field that I work in is called natural language processing. Uh, and that's sometimes considered to be a, a synonym of computational linguistics.
0: Is there a name for when you're specifically trying to pry open that black box and then pull out something that is understandable to us? Like, how did it make the decision?
1: The word that I've heard uses interpretability, Mm right? So you want to have a program that not just does the job, but is also interpretable. So it can be, we can interpret why it does the job as it does. So the current
0: non-interpretability of AI, is that what you see as its greatest threat? Or do you see that like you've heard strong AI and you've heard of the singularity and that machines may turn on humans or that other people may use like if you invert certain parameters then a drug that was that a machine developed to produce a drug that was helpful can be turned to produce a drug that's extremely potent and deleterious do you see the non-interpretability of machines as the greatest issue that we have right now or is it somehow connected to all those other issues i don't
1: know if it's the greatest issue but it's an important issue Another important issue is the so-called bias, right? The, these language models are trained on texts that were, have been written by people that are biased right? and they become biased themselves. Obviously we don't want that to be guided by such kind of texts.
0: There's a phrase that you wrote down. English orthography is not close to optimal. Correct. Can you explain firstly what orthography is and then take us through that phrase?
1: Yes, yeah, so orthography is the way we write language. So English exists primarily as a spoken thing, but we also write it down like as every language and the orthography is the way we write down the sounds. And as you may know, English doesn't have a very good orthography. Well, it doesn't seem to be good because it's very hard to learn. And people that learn English, they make a lot of spelling errors. And even native speakers find it difficult to write down words that they speak. So, uh, Noam Chomsky had that a uh, kind of uh, a statement that English orthography is near optimal, right? It's close to optimal, even though it appears not to be. And uh, so we had the projects when we, when we kind of showed that it actually is not optimal. It's not close to optimal. It could be much better. And so that's the essence of that paper. Why did Chomsky think that it was? Chomsky had a, had very good reasons uh, for saying what, what he said. But, uh, you know, in science, uh, our job is to question everything, right? And that's what we did uh, in that project. We, we, uh, we wanted to question that statement, which seems to be nowadays accepted as truth by everybody. And to show that, uh, to, to provide evidence for that, we, we wrote programs and we did some simulations and we published this to show that it is not actually optimal. It is, it is not close to optimal, it could be much better um yeah so basically uh, that that's the point here
0: what was chomsky's reasons for suggesting it was optimal because as you pointed out it seems on the face that it's clear it's not like the word tough is with an f but it ends with gh it seems clear that it's not so chomsky must have had some reasons and like you mentioned he had good reasons what were they and then what was his response to if if any to to your results
1: yes so Chomsky was when he wrote this in the sixties, he was going against the the consensus, right, which was that English orthography is 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 bad. And he questioned that and he said, no, it's actually near optimal. Uh, It would take a lot of time to go into those arguments, which are which are reasonable. Uh, However, Every, every, there's more to it, right? Every, everything can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, the, the main assumption, uh, that is not spoken is that our writing system in English is based on the history of English and other languages. For example, uh, a lot of English at, at some point was very influenced by French about 1000 years ago and and that influenced the spelling of English now even if we if we could uh, change uh, the orthography of English to something better if if there is something better then that wouldn't be practically possible because people are just used to the way uh, as it is written right now and besides English is spoken in many different lang- in countries and those countries would never agree on on a new system. So, uh, so in a sense, uh, Chomsky was right about so-called morphological consistency, that uh, words that have the same morphemes, uh, which are pronounced differently, should have the same representation for the morpheme, that representation shouldn't change. But there's also something called phonetic consistency, and you gave example of that, And that is just not good, right? There are just too many uh, arbitrary solutions that reflect the pronunciation as it was 500 years ago. For example, the word tough, as you said, was actually pronounced with a consonant at the end, 500 years ago. No, not tough, but there are things like though, for example, which also ends with gh. There's morphological consistency, phonetic consistency, and then there's
0: orthographical optimality. Can you place numbers on those? Like, you can say this language is ninety percent optimal orthographically and fifty uh. percent morphologically consistent. Can you actually place numbers on them?
1: Yeah. So, let me give it right. So, for example, Finnish is considered uh, an extremely good uh, orthography. It's completely consistent, you know, in all uh, kind of uh, aspects. Uh. um, some languages are like, uh, Croatian, for example, is, uh, the orthography was created under the principle, write as you speak. So that has this consistency that you can just, uh, you, you don't, you never make spelling mistakes. You just write as you speak. What, sorry, which language was based like that? That sounds interesting. That's, uh, the, the Serbo- So it used to be Serbo-Croatian. Now these are separate languages, but it still applies to it. Croatian, I think. Now, Spanish, uh, which many people are uh, familiar with, is is another type of uh, language where you know, always know how to read something. You may, you may still make spelling mistakes, but you will never pronounce a written word in a wrong way. So that's another uh, type of consistency. English doesn't have either of those, right? You can, you, you as a native speaker will probably make mistakes unless you have a spell checker, even though you know perfectly well how to pronounce a word. And me as a second language learner of English, I will encounter words that I just don't know how to pronounce, right? So it is definitely a problem in English, but, uh, other languages are even more difficult like the Japanese orthographic system is even more difficult than English.
0: I'm curious if English stands out as best or worse in some metric, and if so, which. For instance, I heard that English can convey a complex sentence second best, something like that, and Mandarin is first. You can think of it as as a simple language, as one that a, a child may just come up with on their own, and it goes, ooh, and ah. And the complexity of what they can convey is small. And so somehow there's some way of measuring that. I don't know. I don't know the, the actual terminology. I just heard this. And I heard that English is actually pretty great. It's second in the world. And Chinese, or sorry, or Mandarin is best at that. But anyway, the point is I just heard this. So what is English great at and not great at?
1: Yeah, so, so English English and Chinese have something in common, which is that they are analytic languages. So morphology in English is, is very basic compared to languages like spanish or polish and in in uh, in chinese it's even more simple basically there's no morphology uh, at all so in that in that sense uh, these analytical uh, languages uh, reach some kind of maximum at some with, within that particular uh, condition i i know that um English is, if you compare uh, things written in different languages, sometimes you see on products like 20 languages with the same message, the English text will probably be one of the shortest ones. So I I think this is maybe something you're referring to that, that it can actually uh, convey the same message with fewer letters or fewer symbols.
0: Reminds me of this joke. Someone was translating. I think it's, I think this actually happened. I think it was from Hideo Kojima, who's a video game creator. And he was on stage. She speaks Japanese. And he says, he goes, duh, 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 and it goes on for like 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And the translator comes. He says, thank you. <laughs> you're like, that's not that's... what he's like. Just If you don't, if you're lazy or you've forgotten, that's fine. But just, there's no way that's
1: all of what he said. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I actually lived in Japan for a while, so this is actually the issue of pragmatics, right? Uh, language, human language, is not just exchanging messages. It's there's a lot of, for example, related to politeness, uh, and in 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 Japanese, you spend a lot of time just being polite, in addition to passing a message.
0: Ah, like san, san at the end of a person's name. Is that to connote I am lower than you or respect?
1: Yeah. There's a lot more tools for expressing this kind of relationships in Japanese. Uh, to give a simpler example in, uh, in Spanish, for example, you can refer to somebody as tú or you, or usted, which is like, sir, but in English it's, uh, that, that doesn't exist. You just call you everyone. So that makes things simpler. Do you know who Larry David is from Seinfeld? Uh, Yeah, I've watched Seinfeld.
0: Larry David, the creator, he said that when Caesar was being assassinated by Brutus, that Brutus said something with the two, and then then Larry David said, that was too informal for an assassination, you should be saying (laughs) instead. (laughs) (laughs) To end this. You did your master's thesis on a theoretical evaluation on selected backtracking algorithms. So how has your perspective on that subject since the writing of that thesis changed, how's it developed?
1: Yeah. So I, I did this, this is part of what's called artificial intelligence, but it's a very formal thing, like uh constraint called constraint satisfaction. And what I liked about it is that you can actually prove something, right? Unlike in pure linguistics, you can never prove anything. You can just argue about it, and then some people will disagree. But I didn't stay in that area because I wanted to work with language, because I love language. And then I found that in, in language, it's very hard to prove anything, because there are always exceptions. But now, after the, all those years, I'm coming back to the point that I think that I can actually use the language of mathematics to describe human language. And I find this very exciting. So, I, I hope to be able to prove things and then uh, be actually safe in saying that I'm, I'm saying the right thing, I'm saying the truth, because it has been proven.
0: What's one of the more out there theories of the Voynich manuscript as to what it's about, what it contains information on that you don't believe in, but you find interesting, maybe even plausible.
1: So there was this hilarious paper as uh, somebody trying to show that the language of Voynich is actually Logban. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's, it's a, uh, it's an invented language. Um, and th- this paper showed to me that you can actually uh, provide evidence for anything, for any language. Like, if it's a lodge band that was invented in the 20th century, and somebody wrote Voynich manuscript in the 15th century in that language, then that means you can basically argue for anything. And that, again, shows the value of if you can actually prove something. and. In the case of the Voynich manuscript, the proof would be actually in the pudding, which means deciphering it into some kind of uh, text that makes sense.
0: Do you think it will be deciphered in the next five years?
1: Voynich? I don't know. I, I, I hope it will be. I hope it will, but I wouldn't bet on it. You know that people said uh, before uh, in the in the history, people often said something will never be done, and it was done. When I first heard about the Zodiac cipher, uh, I thought, no, that's not ever, never gonna be deciphered because it's probably just random noise. Uh. And then it turns out that it was deciphered. So, so that's a lesson for us. Meaning
0: in the case of the Zodiac, you thought that it was gibberish, that he didn't actually write anything. It's not something that was deciphered. It's just symbols.
1: Yeah, I thought it was just the intentional gibberish to confuse people. This is similar to the people that say that Voynich is a joke, right? It's, uh, uh, they, they make the same assumption that somebody just did it to confuse people.
0: Well, thank you for spending about two hours with me or an hour and a half on what is potentially a joke, but we hopefully not. Take care, man.
1: It's good to speak with you. Thank you. It was it was fun talking to you. Bye.
0: The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.